Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we discuss cases that involve corruption and negligence from the people that we are expected to trust. These cases range from the police ignoring protocol to corporations placing people's lives in jeopardy in order to maximize profit. Today, I'm drinking a cream soda, keeping it uh, a little sober today. What about you, Del? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm having a strawberry daiquiri mocktail, so also Ooh. keeping it very clean on this Saturday. This week's case is the troubling case of how racism and homophobia caused the death of a young immigrant at the hands of Jeffrey Dahmer. This case highlights the troubling ramification of police officers not being able to set aside biases and the negative stereotypes that are often associated with marginalized groups. We are going to get into some background information on the Dahmer case and then dive into how the police biases led to Dahmer being able to kill his last five victims. Jeffrey Dahmer was a convicted serial killer who claimed the lives of 17 males between 1978 and 1991. His victims were gay males that he picked up at gay bars, strip malls, and bus stops. Many of his victims were African or Asian descent and lived high-risk lifestyles and often had serious criminal records. He would lure them back to his apartment with promises of money or sexual favors. His MO was to lace his victims' strength with drugs and then strangle them to death. After killing his victims, he would perform explicit acts on the body before dismembering and disposing of the body. He also engaged in cannibalism with several of his victims. In 1994, Dahmer was killed in prison by a fellow prisoner named Christopher Scarver. Everything started in June of 1978, when Dahmer picked up a hitchhiker named Stephen Hicks and offered to take him back to his father's house to drink beer. Hicks decided to leave, and Dahmer hit him in the back of the head with a 10-pound dumbbell. Dahmer then dissected, dissolved, and scattered Hicks' remains throughout his backyard. He later said he killed Hicks because, quote, he wanted Hicks to stay. He did not kill again for nine years. By 1985, he was frequenting gay bathhouses where he would drug men and rape them as they lay unconscious. Although he was arrested twice for incidents of indecent exposure in 1982 and 1986, he only faced probation and was not charged for the rape. So, Dell, before we get more into Dahmer's crimes, can you explain a little bit more of what this high-risk lifestyle that many of his victims led was? So, many of his victims were gay men who were also sex workers, prostitutes, and they also frequented spots where gay men hung out. Unfortunately, in 1978, people were not as accepting of homosexuality as we are today, and thus people that wanted to victimize others would often go to these spots in order to have victims that wouldn't be able to go to the police based off their homosexual status at the time. The police, as we're going to get into later, were not fond of homosexuals and didn't take crime against homosexuals as seriously as they did heterosexual individuals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's definitely a running theme of this Jeffrey Dahmer case. Dahmer's next victim after Stephen Hicks was Stephen Twomey. Dahmer picked him up from a bar and took him back to a hotel room. He later stated that he had no memory of actually murdering Twomey. After Twomey's death, he actively began to seek out victims. He became obsessed with the idea that he could turn his victims into zombies. He used different methods such as drilling holes into their skull and injecting hydrochloric acid or boiling water into their brains. 
he also had a desire for his victims to act as youthful and submissive sexual partners. A few months ago, um, in the beginning of the summer, ID did a special on Jeffrey Dahmer, and they spoke to a psychologist that I believe worked with him, and he had allegedly, Dahmer told this psychologist that once he was at a museum and I guess human bodies were on display or there were photographs of like the inner workings of human bodies. And that's kind of when his sexual arousal with human bodies began. That's when he discovered it. He claimed he wanted to keep his victims with him and would regularly save body parts. When Dahmer's killing spree began, he lived with his grandmother and he later moved into an apartment in a predominantly black neighborhood in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Conorak, Synthesum Phone was Dahmer's 13th victim. He was an immigrant who settled in Milwaukee at the age of three. At the age of 14, he was approached by Dahmer, who offered him money in exchange for explicit pictures. Unbeknownst to him, Dahmer had been convicted of drugging and molesting his older brother, Kison. Synthesum Phone agreed to go back to Dahmer's apartment and pose for nude photos. Once there, Dahmer drugged the boy with Halcyon, which is a powerful sedative. Dahmer started torturing the boy by drilling a hole into his head and filling it with hydrochloric acid. On the morning of May 27, 1991, Dahmer left the boy unconscious in his apartment while he went to the store. Synthesum phone awoke and ran out of Dahmer's apartment and caught the eye of Sandra Smith and Nicole Childress. He was naked, bleeding, and completely incoherent due to the drugs. While they called police, Dahmer showed up and claimed the boy was a drunken adult houseguest of his. The police officers, John Balserac and Joseph Gabrish, arrived on the scene and talked to Dahmer and the boy separately. Due to the drugs in his system, the boy was considered unresponsive. Dahmer stated that the boy was his 19-year-old lover who drank too much on the weekends. The officers were convinced that it was a lover's quarrel and left the boy with Dahmer. Smith and Childress were very shaken up and actually had their aunt call the police again to check in on what had happened to the boy. The officers showed clear and evident bias when investigating Dahmer's involvement with the boy. They didn't run a check on Dahmer, which would have flagged his previous conviction. Remember, Dahmer was arrested for drugging and sexually fondling a 13-year-old boy, which turned out to be the boy's older brother in 1988. He was sentenced to five years probation and one year in a work release camp. He was paroled two months early. They also didn't investigate the strange smell coming from Dahmer's apartment. If they did, they would have discovered the decaying body of... Also, they didn't listen to Smith and Childress, who was familiar with the boy about their red flags, including Dahmer's demeanor and Dahmer not being able to remember the boy's name. Logic stands to reason that if Dahmer was involved with the boy like he said, he would know the boy's name. The officers made homophobic jokes and were laughing about the incident. Later, evidence emerged that the officers made remarks such as the intoxicated Asian naked male was returned to his sober boyfriend with laughter in the background as they made these statements. They described the incident as a squabble between homosexuals. When ordered to investigate another scene, one of the officers joked about washing off after visiting a homosexual, stating that, quote, my partner is going to get deloused at the station. They failed to follow up on a tip from a woman who had seen a missing poster of the boy. When Smith protested the police leaving, they threatened her with arrest. Bolserac and Gabrish sent the ambulance away despite not checking the boy thoroughly for any injuries. 
keep in mind, as Jenny stated, the boy was clearly injured, yet the ambulance was never able to check on the boy. This entire police interaction had racist undertone due to Smith and Childress being of African descent and the boy being of Asian. This all had very negative effects. About 30 minutes after the police left, Dahmer killed the boy. Dahmer injected a lethal dose of hydrochloric acid into the boy's skull. He was afraid that the women were going to keep pressing the issue and that the police were going to return. Dahmer killed four more people before being arrested on July 22nd, 1991, when Tracy Edwards, Dahmer's next victim, broke free and called for help. The officers were initially fired, but were reinstated when they appealed. Later in his career, Bolsarik was elected to be the head of the Milwaukee Police Union, and he retired with honors in 2017. The city agreed to pay $850,000 to the boy's family. So, Del, this case has so much complexity to it. Where do you want to start? You know, I think we can start with the racial and the xenophobia that was on display by this police department. It is so crazy to think that um, at this time, it was perfectly acceptable for police officers to go to the scene of a crime and release a minor back into the custody of a known pedophile. Yeah, and to believe the word of a white man over the word of two and then later three black women is there's no words for it. it it shouldn't be a surprise but it is and it's sad right and I think it's also the thing of looking at it of if they had just stopped for one moment and thought we have three people saying the same thing how about we go with those three people? But unfortunately, they were blinded by their own racial bias. Yeah, and if you look at a photo of Conorak, he is very clearly a young boy. He um, was only 14 at the time of his death. He's got a baby face, in my opinion. He does not look 19. And he had had a hole drilled into his head. So he has a head injury and he's bleeding from the head. And the police still let him go. I don't understand that. I think it brings up questions of was Dahmer, you know, premeditated in who he chose as a victim because he knew that it could be a possibility that someone would escape and he used it as a, well, you know, if someone's going to complain about me, I'm going to make it someone that the police is not going to actually believe. Yeah, so Jeffrey Dahmer says that none of his killings were racially motivated. It was based purely on attraction. Um, But he was a very intelligent man. And I have to question if he did know, are these people going to be looked for? Are they going to be taken seriously? And if they get away from me, will they be believed? Especially because these were sexually, they were sexually explicit crimes too. And a lot of times, man or woman survivors of sexual crimes are not believed. And just thinking of the trouble that assault victims go through now, you could multiply that uh, when it comes to the era of the Dahmer case. Yeah, so in the 80s and 90s, Milwaukee had a very large black population and a very large white population, but it was a pretty segregated city. On top of the 
racism that was clearly on display, there was also a level of homophobia. And I think it came from both the police, but also the media and how they presented this case. So we've talked about the remarks that the police officers made and how they felt like they needed to wash off the quote unquote gayness of the case. So the media also did not highlight the fact that Dahmer was a gay man. I think that they want to sweep that part under the rug a bit because one of the things that the media tends to do is protect police officers. And if you highlighted the fact that Dahmer was a homosexual man, you would also have to highlight the derogatory statements that were made by the police officers. Yeah, that's a really good point. And again, this is the 80s and 90s. AIDS is an epidemic no one knows where it's coming from how it's starting or I guess not how it's starting people were calling it you know gay cancer it was the gay disease and it was mainly gay men who were getting it um so you can probably argue that that was part of why the officer said they had to clean themselves but it is just a general sense when you hear that you know reporting that they were just grossed out by two gay men and the activities that they were probably getting up to that night. And I think one thing that it's important to note is the fact that we don't even know if Connor was actually gay. He was a 14-year-old boy, and there was no evidence that he had any homosexual leanings, but the officer just looked at it as a thing of they alleged he was gay, and that was enough for them to treat him as an other and treat him with less respect. Yes, which is so terribly problematic. It should be noted that since um, Jeffrey Dahmer's kind of reign of terror over Milwaukee, that gay activists did end up working with the Milwaukee Police Department to provide training on how to better handle the LGBT population of the city. So that is kind of a nice thing. I don't want to say a silver lining, but something good that came from something heinous. So this leads into looking at the oversight of the police officers in this case. Dahmer did have a parole officer that he was assigned once he was released, but the parole officer never checked up on him. He never went into his house. And going into the house and speaking to the parolee is a basic requirement. And this requirement was waived because the social worker was, quote, overworked. Yeah, this idea that Social workers are overworked does seem to happen a lot in different cases that end up leading to tragedy, which social workers shouldn't be overworked by any means. But we also need to be making sure that nothing is slipping through the cracks. Because the thing is, one death caused by someone not being checked up on is too many. Yes. And unfortunately, you have the situation where you can have all the sympathy in the world for the people that are on the front lines and helping with making sure that violent felons are not reoffending. But we also have to make sure that we hold them accountable when things go wrong. Yeah, it's a, kind of like a systematic change that really needs to happen. You also see the situation in the legal system where you have people who are being defended by public defenders, but they're overworked and they don't have enough time to dedicate to each case. So even someone who has the potential to be on death row is not getting the type of care and consideration they need to actually have their case fall. Yeah, that's um, so we're going to be talking about the Julius Jones case in a few weeks, and he had a very bad public defender. So I'm sure that's definitely something we'll talk about. 
So going back to the media interest that this story generated, I think we also need to look at what the serial killer fascination that our country tends to have when it comes to people like Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy, the Green River Killer. Yeah, the 80s and 90s in America were a very violent time, and that's where we see a lot of these infamous, notorious serial killers um, you know, start their work or get found out and convicted. Um, Jeffrey Dahmer was very interesting because he spoke with the media and he did an interview with Inside Edition. And he really, you know, was honest about his experiences, almost his mental health as well. And it really gave people a glimpse into the mind of a serial killer, which I think is what so many people who are interested in serial killers, what they want to know, what made this person who they are. And to answer that, Jeffrey Dahmer said, the only person to blame is right across from you. So he was speaking to the interviewer when he said this, and he meant himself. Not society, not parents, not pornography. Those are just excuses. And I think that's really telling on his intelligence and his self-awareness. I don't respect Jeffrey Dahmer, but I do admire his honesty for all of that. He was also in the same interview with Inside Edition. The reporter asked him, do you still get these urges? And he said even in prison, he sometimes would still get these urges. And that he was doing this because it gave him, murdering gave him this sense of excitement. And he had this control that he really enjoyed having. And I think that's the case with a lot of criminals when you actually look at their motives for committing crimes. They want power, they want control, and the way that they achieve that is through controlling other people, especially when they're not able to control the external factors in their life. Yeah, Dahmer was also very honest about how he was able to disconnect from his crimes, and he really began to see the victim's objects and not people. Also, when thinking about people's fascination with serial killers, I think we definitely have to talk about this idea of an attractive or sexy serial killer, which Jeffrey Dahmer fell into. Yeah, I've definitely heard people call him attractive. I know Ted Bundy is notorious for being good looking in almost every documentary or article written about him. They have to mention how attractive he was, which truly irritates me because that's not the point. I know so many women, you know, were so in love with Ted Bundy when he was on the stand. And I think, Del, you've mentioned that it wasn't really any different for Dahmer, even though he was pretty much openly gay at that point. Right. And, you know, I always found it very weird, especially during the trials when the prosecution is the first people to present their case. So you are fully aware of what this person is accused of, and yet you still have women after, you know, groups of women going into the courthouse and supporting this individual. And I think that it's interesting that this is a really a male serial killer phenomenon, because you don't see the same level of obsession with looks when it comes to female serial killers. Yeah, that's a really good point. I don't know if maybe, I mean, Eileen Warnos is really the first female serial killer that comes to my mind. And she killed men. And I guess she was maybe notoriously seen as a man hater. She, I don't know if she was gay, but she was in relationships with women and she had been victimized by men 
throughout her life. Um, so maybe there isn't some kind of sex appeal to that. I'm not sure. The whole question of the sexy serial killer really makes you wonder, what does a monster look like? What are we told by the media what a monster looks like? Uh, often when people are attractive, we give them other attractive um, traits and attributes like they're smart they're funny they're nice people Um, but then when someone is unattractive we give them bad attributes you can see in disney movies the villains are often disabled people i mean scar in the lion king his name is literally scar and he has a scar on his eye maybe that's not a disability but it is some kind of physical disfigurement Ursula and the Little Mermaid, she's fat. She's a loud woman. It's not, you know, typically seen as attractive. I think one of the things to add to that is the fact that when you attribute positive qualities to someone else, it puts up this wall to all the negative things. People do this in relationships all the time where they have looked at this person, they have fallen for the qualities that they've endowed that person with, even if the person doesn't actually have those qualities. And then when you are presenting evidence that they're not that person, they have a very hard time accepting that. It's like seeing the world through the rose-colored glasses, right? Another idea we have to talk about with the serial killer fascination is how often these killers overshadow their victim. Even when we're not sure who the killer is, like Jack the Ripper and the Zodiac Killer, there's a legend around them. And as we mentioned, you know, in the 80s and 90s, a lot of these serial killers were being discovered and committing their crimes and they kind of set the precedent for what we view a serial killer to be today. You know, the 80s and 90s were a very unique time when it came to serial killers. We see it come up every now and again. Today, you had the case of the BTK killer coming up. And still, he was the main focus when he came forward. Jeffrey Dahmer is always the main focus when his case is spoken about, even if we're speaking about it in the context of what someone did wrong. Jeffrey Dahmer is the flashpoint. Jeffrey Dahmer is the name that everyone knows. And I think that's the way the media has spun it to make it more appealing and to make it more marketable. Yeah. Imagine being a victim's family member and always the case of your loved one is always going to be overshadowed. I mean, maybe it's too much to expect people to remember all 17 names of his victims, but we don't really talk about them. We don't really talk about how they suffered and the implications that his fa- their families faced. Right. And I think that leads into a very important topic in the Jeffrey Dahmer case. And that is how people, I don't know whether it's to cope with what happened or to try to learn more about it, but they tend to look at the cannibalism aspect of the Jeffrey Dahmer case and joke about it and make light of it when it was something serious that happened to someone's family member. Yeah, like I said, imagine being one of Jeffrey Dahmer's victims' families and there's a chance that you don't have your loved one's body to bury or their ashes to keep in your house because he destroyed their body and he ate it. I mean, that might sound kind of funny and a little awkward, but that's what these people have to face, that their family members were not just brutalized by being, you know, 
strangled, sexually assaulted, dismembered. They were eaten too. They don't have any piece left of them. And I agree. I think it probably is some type of coping mechanism. And I also think, you know, no one, no serial killers were necessarily known for that, at least in America at the time. So it was really, you know, this grotesque attribute of the Jeffrey Dahmer case that was unique to the Jeffrey Dahmer case. And it definitely added a level of sensationalism and intrigue that other cases didn't have. Um, There's different references to Dahmer in popular culture, like in the Katy Perry song, Dark Horse, that came out a few years ago, Juicy J raps, she'll eat your heart out like Jeffrey Dahmer, which I don't think he had any ill will with that, but it's definitely in bad taste. It's, again, making light of his crimes. And any reference to Dahmer's cannibalism in popular culture, I always see it as strange, especially considering that cannibalism is a universal file and something that most cultures across the world looks down on as a taboo. Mm-hmm. I've seen, again, making light of this, I've seen people refer to him as Jeffrey Nahmer. And I don't know if this was real or not, but Del, recently I texted you about how there was a Jeffrey Dahmer cutting board. I don't, who, what kind of edgelord wants that in their house? Like, that's the only type of person I can think of. And it's, I, I, disgusting isn't even the word for it. It's just when someone doesn't even know they're being offensive. That wraps up this week's case. Please let us know what you think about this case, especially the officer's actions towards Conorak. Thank you for listening. Make sure you click the subscribe button. You can find us on all your favorite podcast platforms every Wednesday with a new episode. Make sure you follow us on Instagram at Crime Corruption Cocktails and on Twitter at Charade Inc. Please consider donating to our Patreon. This will help us get better equipment and bring higher quality content to you. We appreciate every donation. This is Jenny and Dell signing off. Stay safe.